Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Okay, shall we, shall we begin? Uh, my name is Terry Shellington. I'm the moderator today, but uh, you don't need to remember my name. Um, uh, let me, let me uh, for those of you who are new, let me explain uh, some things. Uh, we ask you to turn off your cell phones if you have one. Uh, there's a basket on the table, and uh, there should be $11 for each of you in the basket. Um, we uh, are a nonprofit organization and, and really welcome memberships. And Lisa, our staff person hiding behind the computer there, is a uh, person you could talk to if you'd like to be a member of SACPA and beyond the mailing list and all that sort of thing. We, we thank our partners in, in crime in this uh, endeavor. Uh, we are supported by the University of Lethbridge and their, their administrative service and uh, uh, Shaw TV and Country Kitchen Catering that you'll come to appreciate before the lunch is over and, uh, and uh, the Lethbridge Herald as well. So let's introduce the subject matter. We'll, uh, we'll hear a presentation, we'll break for lunch at 12.30 and come back at 1 for questions. That's our format. But um, uh, I don't need to introduce the topic a great deal. We have all been participants in this global story in which Pope Benedict uh, uh, moved out of office and uh, the new chap, uh, Pope Francis, is in. We watched that uh, story unfold and wondered what it meant and uh, uh, where the church is going. And here with all the answers is, <laughs> is um, uh, Aaron Phillips, who is uh, uh, canon priest at uh, Coldale Anglican Church, uh, ecumenical chaplain at the U of L and uh, the the Lethbridge College. But her credentials run quite deep, actually. If you have a flyer in front of you, which I'm not going to read, uh, she has a lot of ecumenical um, notes in her resume. Um, but she is not only an ecumenical observer. She has been, I think, all her life an ecumenical, an ecumenical participant. Uh, so she brings a lot of insight to this, and uh, I'm looking forward to um, meeting Aaron. You may have to stand on your tippy toes to see who it is. Uh, yeah. So welcome, Aaron. Okay, it's not quite tippy toes. But that's okay. This means if uh, any of the Catholics object to what I say, <laughs> easy to duck. Well, thank you, Terry, and thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak on this. I have very much enjoyed uh, doing some reading for this. I tried to get... Well, my oldest friend is a reporter for the New York Times in Rome, so I asked her for some Scooby Inside Snack to share with you. And she said, sorry, we've taken vows of secrecy on the conclave. <laughs> like, you're a reporter. So I have nothing inside to tell you, uh, that inside. I have a few things to, to share with you, though, that, um, that have been reported. Now, in my lifetime, I have seen six popes. Three of them had reigned before I was 17. You could do the math. But to be honest, I really didn't notice them until uh, just after my 17th birthday, the first Pope John Paul died. 
after 33 days in office. And this did get attention because it was very sudden and unexpected. He died in his sleep. Uh, it was so sudden and unexpected that it prompted a whole series of conspiracy theories that he was going to uncover the corruption in the Vatican Bank and therefore was bumped off by sort of a shady cabal of uh, the mob and Vatican Bank officials who didn't want their d- dirty deeds. This, this showed up as a plot line in uh, Coppola's Godfather 3. If you've seen the worst of the three Godfather movies, um, that made uh, quite a bit of stir. So there was a second conclave and the election of John Paul II, a compromise figure, uh, the first non-Italian elected since the 16th century. He was understood to be a compromise because basically the conclave had been badly divided between two Italian candidates, and he was promoted as somebody who would sort of hold things together. Um, By the time he died in 2005, there had in fact been a sea change in the church, and particularly in the role of the papacy. In 2005, I was on retreat with a group of university students when it became clear that the Pope was dying after many years of illness. We watched for hours on television as the news media covered this as a huge, a major story, the imminent death of the Pope, as hundreds of thousands of pilgrims flocked to Rome and camped in St. Peter's Square, creating logistical issues, uh, unprecedented and unanticipated. When he died... It was a huge story, and his funeral was watched by millions around the world and by hundreds of thousands who had come to Rome for it. The lineups were incredible. The Vatican had to extend their open hours to allow these hundreds of thousands of people to pay tribute, first as as the Pope lay in state and then uh, at his tomb. John Paul was the third longest-serving pope in the history of the church. It is estimated that he was seen in the flesh by more people than any other human being in history. He had traveled extensively throughout the world. In fact, he was almost never in Rome. Uh, He made famous the Pope-mobile, Uh, He made famous his gesture of getting off the plane and kissing the ground of of the country he had landed in. Despite suffering from Parkinson's and some medical problems that had uh, arisen because of the assassination attempt on his life in the 80s, despite that, he had continued to travel extensively, and the Vatican had gone to great efforts to facilitate his travels without people realizing how physically Uh, debilitated he was. He had a special papal throne, which for most people we'd call a wheelchair, but was never called a wheelchair in the Vatican. And much like, you know, reminds me of um, of, um, uh, FDR, the efforts that were made to keep from people the extent of his MS. The same was done uh, for the Pope with his Parkinson's. And 
reporters uh, talk about how the Vatican officials tried very hard to emphasize that he was still mentally sharp despite his physical impairments, that he was still on top of his game and still at the helm, which suggests that there were, there were concerns that, in fact, he wasn't. During his uh, term, John Paul transformed the papacy in some key ways. He was very involved in a variety of world events, such as the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, and he had personally intervened to try to head off the Iraq War. He was the first pope to visit a synagogue in Rome. He had put an end to the movement to beatify Queen Isabella, who was responsible for the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. And he had intervened to remove a convent from the grounds of Auschwitz. So he really advanced relationships with the Jewish community in some significant ways. He traveled more than any pope had ever traveled. He was charismatic, handsome. He had been an actor and understood the power of presence and of theater in engaging people. He uh, did much to encourage his own forms of piety among the laity. He held mass gatherings of youth around the world to engage young people in church again. And out of these youth gatherings, there was in fact a flourishing of vocations, particularly in countries like Poland. But he also encouraged vocations in much of the developing world, the Southern Hemisphere. He very much personalized the papacy. He made the Pope not just the head of the Roman Catholic Church, but now a world figure. And you can contrast this with Paul VI, who I personally think is a highly underrated Pope. I mean, nobody really liked Paul VI, and I think it's a shame. Because I, I could give you a I can give you a thesis later of why I think Paul VI was actually a great Pope. John Allen, who is a reporter with the National Catholic Reporter and does analysis for CNN on the Vatican, writes that when the Beatles released their song, The Fool on the Hill, that people actually speculated that it was about Paul VI. You know, the poor guy who nobody pays attention to, nobody listens to. And he said, no, whether the Beatles were thinking about the Pope at all is really relevant. He said, what's significant is that people actually made that association. That Paul VI had tried very hard to be uh, significant in world events and had failed. <clears throat> the criticism, the, one of the main criticisms of John Paul was precisely that he had popularized the papacy, that he had turned it into a universal office, that he had become not just Bishop of Rome, but Bishop of the world, that he had personalized it so much, and as a result did not take the time to pay attention to the responsibilities of the Bishop of Rome. So one of the criticisms that has been leveled against him, uh, often quietly, but by many cardinals, bishops, and um, uh, people who watch the church, is that he allowed lots of the problems uh, in the Curia, in the Vatican, to continue and in fact worsen because he just wasn't paying attention to it. Um, that the Curia became 
uh, even more internally um, unaccountable that the scandals, the financial and the sexual scandals of the church were largely ignored uh, under his pontificacy. Uh, that he just wasn't paying attention to uh, Rome. The documents that were leaked by Benedict's uh, butler, revealing all sorts of internal problems in the church, the so-called Vataliks, almost all of that happened under John Paul's watch, not under Benedict's. What it revealed was that lots of things had been happening that he was just not dealing with. So that when he died, there was a real perception among the cardinals that they needed a better administrator and somebody who would stay closer to home and pay more attention to the Vatican. Now, John Allen argues, he wrote a book called The Rise of Benedict XVI, in which he argued that something significant happened, though, when the Pope died, and that's that the cardinals saw hundreds of thousands of people coming into Rome to be there when he died, to be there for the funeral, and realized that they had something really important happening here, that John Paul had a huge impact, particularly on young people, and that they couldn't afford to lose that momentum. They couldn't give up the benefits of that kind of world papacy, and yet they did need somebody who would do more at home to sort of get the house in order. And that out of those two concerns came the move to elect Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never sort of known the names of the popes before they were elected. You know, it's really fun to listen to people doing commentary on the election, and they're saying, oh, right, Cardinal such and such. Uh, Let me just check my notes. And you can sort of hear them going through, because most of these men are not household names. They're known in their own churches, their own countries perhaps. They may be known to those who follow the Vatican, but they're not known uh, by most people outside the church. Except for Ratzinger. Ratzinger is probably the first pope, maybe ever, who was in fact an internationally known person before he was elected to the papacy. In large part because for 24 years he had headed up what used to be known as the Holy Office, the the Inquisition, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and he had been the sort of doctrinal watchdog of the church, known as John Paul's Rottweiler. When he was elected, he was dubbed the German Shepherd. Uh, He did not have a particularly positive uh, reputation for many people in Europe and North America because he was perceived to be a hardline conservative because he had run a very tight ship in his own congregation. But that was part of the attraction, was that the hope that he would run a tight ship uh, in the Vatican generally. He was certainly of the same mind as John Paul theologically, but he had shown he was also willing to take some harder lines on some of the scandals than John Paul had. So, for instance, John Thavis, who is, uh, for over 20 years, worked with Catholic News Service in Rome, in his book, The Vatican Diaries, talks about how uh, Maciel, the founder of the Legion of Christ, which was a very conservative, 
very secretive religious order, favored by John Paul because it was raising a lot of money for Catholic institutions and because it was producing lots of vocations, particularly in places like Mexico and Latin America. John Paul really favored this order and basically would not listen to what appears now to be about 60 years of documentation that he was, Massimo was sexually abusing seminarians, that he had fathered children with women, he'd created sort of alternate identities, had owned houses with these women, had fathered children with them, and then sexually abused those children, that there was all sorts of speculation about financial improprieties, and that John Paul refused to listen to this because he saw in the legions of Christ the future of the church, But then he gave this over, all of the investigation of the sexual abuse scandals, to Ratzinger. And it's Ratzinger who started to uh, discipline some of the participants. It was Ratzinger who took the legions of Christ over, basically, when he became pope and put his own people in to run it and sent their founder into um, a time of repentance and silence. Now, there are people who say that Benedict did not do enough, that he could have done more. Davis's point is, if you understand the inner workings of the Vatican, this was actually a huge shift to be more critical and to take more seriously the reports of victims, that Benedict was personally quite horrified by what he discovered when he started investigating this. At the same time, that this was all coming out, though. John Paul's, uh, the process of having him declared blessed, which is the first step to becoming canonized as a saint, was happening, and Benedict pushed it through, despite people saying this shouldn't be pushed through, that this should be held up until it became clear what John Paul's responsibilities were in the sex scandals, the abuse scandals. Um, It seems to me that Benedict, in a sense, gets a hard rap for not not being even more radical when, in fact, he was making some significant changes to the ways in which this was being handled in the church. And I never, ever, ever thought there'd be a day when I would defend Ratzinger publicly or privately. But actually, the more reading I've done, the more I've decided that he really was trying Uh, At the same time, he managed to mess a number of things up. He had always been perceived to be a very serious, very introverted, um, stern academic. And then John Paul died, and he emerged as this very pastoral person at the funeral. Uh, Cardinals who had come to Rome began to see that, in fact, he was capable of very warm relationships with people, Uh, in the Vatican, that he was also capable of being very responsive to the crowds, and decided that, in fact, this wasn't a major impediment, that they could vote for him because he had not only all these other skills, but he was capable of some warmth and connection. Almost immediately, however, he began a series of international misadventures, shall we say. Almost immediately after he was elected, he, made, he gave an academic talk about Islam in which he managed to enrage the Islamic world by disparaging Muhammad. 
Out of that came some fruitful conversation after the fact, but at the time and in the media, it was a disaster. Uh, He said to Latin Americans that, in fact, the evangelism of Latin America had not involved the imposition of a foreign culture on them, which just seems so obviously wrong, and in fact enraged people there. Uh, He... He said that the use of condoms made the spread of HIV worse, not better, which enraged governments, NGO, well, just about everybody um, in the world. He always had to deal, has had to deal with the problem of his own past as a German under the Nazis. He had been a member of the Hitler Youth as a young, as a boy. Uh, He was always honest about that, and in fact, it was one of the things he was basically forced to do as a boy. He was never a Nazi. He was never a, a, a proponent of Nazi ideas. But he never, he could never sort of lose that association as a German Catholic. One of the things he did as Pope was re- remove some of the restrictions on the use of the Tridentine Mass in an effort to reconcile with the Society of Saint Pius X this very conservative group that had broken away from the Catholic Church. He'd been trying to bring them back in. Uh, he removed some of the restrictions in the Tridentine Mass, which includes prayers for the, for the Jewish people who live in darkness. Um, he removed the excommunication of one of their bishops, who was a Holocaust denier. And when this came out and people were enraged, he said, but I didn't know. People said, well, how could you not know? It's in his file." You know, didn't you look at this? Um, the, these are a list of sort of the, the missteps that John Hooper, who writes for The Guardian, um, sort of listed off after his resignation. I would add his trip in 2009 to Israel when he talked about the Holocaust but never spoke directly to the German church's role in the Holocaust or to the Roman Catholic Church's neutrality under Hitler, uh, especially when he went to Yad Vashem, which is the memorial to those who died in the Holocaust. He said nothing specifically about the church or about German responsibility. And people were very disappointed and very upset about this. It's also being pointed out that although he was a sort of very stern on doctrinal matters when it came to sort of the problems of the Vatican and the bureaucracy, he was not very effective in dealing with it. In fact, he added a new office to the Vatican. So not only did he not simplify and and sort of clean up the mess, he just added more bureaucracy to what was already there. That then becomes the the context for the election of uh, um, Francis. It has been suggested that after the Vataliques, when Benedict had three retired cardinals investigate um, what was happening and read the dossier that they, produ- that they produced, that he was so overwhelmed with the task of cleaning this mess up that in his 80s and with some health problems of his own, he just felt he couldn't, he couldn't respond. And so he chose to resign the first time in 600 years a pope has resigned. 
So the conclave that's gathering has in many ways the same problems that they had in 2005. That is, they're still looking for somebody who's going to be able to come in and clean up some of the problems, some of the scandals and the rest that have happened in Rome. Uh, they, still, they still are looking for somebody who can connect with people, can uh, have some of this greater role publicly. They also recognize after two non-Italian popes that it's probably time to step even further outside the box and look at somebody from the developing world, from the Southern Hemisphere. So there were sort of two main names that you heard. One was an Italian, uh, Archbishop Scola, Cardinal Scola, who's the Archbishop of Milan, who is uh, considered both an insider who understood the Vatican, but also uh, willing to um, do what needed to be done to clean it up. And um, Scharer, who was a cardinal from, is a cardinal from Brazil, who is German background, so had sort of the, the best of both. He was both a European and a Latin American. The only problem, apparently, is that he was considered too much of an insider to the Vatican and also um, a second German pope in a row. And the Italians, they said, just couldn't handle two Germans in a row. <laughs> Fine. Okay. Uh, so I was listening to commentary on the BBC uh, by George Frazaka, who's a professor at University of Bristol, who had said, you know, was asked at the beginning of the commentary who did he think was going to be elected? Because it was right after we saw the smoke, we knew there was a new pope, but nobody knew who. And he's saying he was pretty sure it was Scola. And then they announce it's Brajoli, and he goes, well, obviously he had support from the first ballot because he was elected very quickly. So obviously people had gone in with the intention of voting for him. And in fact, he had been the second vote-getter in the 2005 conclave, all of which, by the way, is supposed to be confidential, so I don't know how people know this with such certainty. <laughs> but uh, he is a Latin American Argentinian, but also Italian, so he's kind of a nice compromise in that. 42% of Roman Catholics live in Latin America. He has a lot of administrative experience as the superior for the Jesuits and as the Archbishop of Buenos Aires. Uh, incredible personal charisma. Known for his work among the poor, lived in a tiny apartment, wouldn't live in the big papal or the, uh, the Episcopal palace, took the bus to work. Um, did a lot of work in the slums, went into AIDS hospices. When he became Pope, he didn't wear furs, he didn't wear the gold cross. Uh, he, he phoned and canceled his own newspaper. He paid his own hotel bill. He wouldn't take the papal limo. He took the bus with the other cardinals or walked. Um, no, just consistently has chosen to identify himself with the poor from choosing the name Francis to refusing to move into the papal apartments. He's continuing to live in the guest house. And he wears brown shoes. <laughs> Very significant. He wasn't implicated in any of the leaks, so he's not implicated in the sex scandals, which gives him a certain authority to speak. He has been, however, criticized for his role in Argentina's dirty war. So the New Yorker wrote a very hostile article, uh, John Lee Anderson calling him sarcastically the humble pope, 
saying that he was very involved with the dirty work. The uh, um, uh, Wall Street Journal, however, published a counter article saying that it's because he's been so critical of the government of Argentina on behalf of the poor that the government of Argentina's own media, their government-owned newspapers, have been trying to smear him. And they quote all sorts of people involved in human rights organizations who've investigated crimes committed under uh, the government in the dirty war and say, in fact, he was not implicated. And as Archbishop, he led the Argentinian bishops in a public apology for the role of the church in the Dirty War. Quickly, 10 issues that John Allen identifies for the future church. The demographic shift to the Southern Hemisphere, the whole issue, the politics of identity, trying to reassert some of the pre-Vatican II uh, marks of the church. The growth of Islam, both in Africa and in Europe. Uh, the Catholic Church has grown from 1% of the population to 21% of the population in the last 100 years in the Sub-Sahara. The aging population of the North, the lack of vocations leading to laity doing more and more of the pastoral care. Moral teaching, trying to keep up with all the technological changes, particularly around medical issues and uh, sexual issues. Social teaching, trying to keep up with a shift from the industrial uh, context of much of the Vatican social teaching to uh, globalization. The environmental issues that globalization has made most uh, extreme. The fact that diplomatically, historically, the church has relied on having real power and now is finding itself in more and more contexts where it doesn't. And finally, the explosion of the Pentecostal churches. Uh, I would say that Francis, because he comes from the Global South, uh, where the Pentecostal Church has been uh, growing significantly, that because he, he understands the issues of the poor, that he will prove to be up to the task of, first of all, dealing with the diplomatic issues where you no longer can rely on your, the church. Uh, he's experienced this already in Argentina. He's committed to economic issues, uh, concern for the poor. He has proven, although you know people were very upset that he's very conservative on same-sex issues and women, and I'm like, he's a cardinal for goodness sakes. They were all appointed by John, Paul, and Benedict. What did you expect? Having said that, he's proven that he's quite capable and willing to compromise and be pragmatic in terms of addressing some, some of those issues. And I think that that bodes well. Uh, one of the women I saw interviewed from a religious order in the States said, if he's caring about the marginalized, he's gonna care about women's issues. So she was quite optimistic about it. And he's shown that he is a tough administrator. So actually I'm quite hopeful that he'll be able to address some of those internal issues. Um, personally, I must confess, I quite love the man. Um, I, Francis, my namesake as well. Um, and uh, I love him so much that apparently some of my friends have decided I'm a self-loathing Anglican because I have said nothing about the new Archbishop of Canterbury. But every day I have something I love about Francis. So uh, on that note, let's eat. <laughs>